0: Please open in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 11. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 2 through 16, First Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. And finally, we come to an easy passage. Verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Please be seated. When society was patriarchal, as it was in the New Testament context, and as it has been everywhere in the world except in modern society in our day, the church avoided scandal by going along with it, fundamentally evil as patriarchy was and is. Now, however, that modern society is not at least officially, egal- or is at least officially egalitarian, the scandal is that the church is not going along with society, not rejoicing in the unprecedented freedom to let women and men serve according to gift and call without an arbitrary gender line. This scandal impedes both the evangelism of, of others and the edification, the retention and development of faith, of those already converted. Now, believe it or not, that's not a quote from Andy Stanley. Although, he would probably agree with it, It's a quote from a guy named John G. Stackhouse, who claims to be an evangelical. And he wrote this book, Finally Feminist, a Practical Christian Understanding, excuse me, a Pragmatic Christian Understanding of Gender. Well, pragmatic indeed, and certainly not biblical in any way. Men, that is, men in general, men and women, the human race, hate authority. That is, they hate to be under authority, yet conversely, they seem to love to exercise their own authority. In our current society's intense debate about intersectionality, patriarchy, wokeness, it seems to be lost on the overthrowers of institutions that they must exercise authority and dominate others in order to bring about their intended changes. And if they manage to get into the positions of power where they, uh, that they say are needed for change, then what makes them different from the power base that they have just displaced? The answer, of course, they would say, is that they will exercise their power justly to do away with authoritarian and hierarchical structures. But this is simply impossible. The entire universe operates on structure and hierarchy. It is built into the very fabric of God's creation. For God is the creator who exercises authority over all things. The question is not whether there will be authority and structure. But will all other authorities bend the knee to the authority of the living God? What we'll see this morning is that God has designed the universe to operate under His authority, and He has designated the necessary authority structures to carry out His sovereign plan through the wise, loving exercise of His authority. So God has designed the universe to operate under His authority, and he has designated the necessary authority structures to carry out his sovereign plan through the wise, loving exercise of his authority. Authority and submission are necessary for the success of God's plan. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we are coming to a new argument. Paul says, now I praise you. And we've just finished up the argument on idolatry. And remember that the apostle has been dealing with cultural problems within the church. Now, they're related to theological problems, sin problems, but the, the Corinthians have been bringing the culture, the thoughts about, that the culture has about all kinds of different uh, aspects of living. They've just sucked their, the cultural milieu into the church and Paul has said, you must not live according to your culture because your culture is not living biblically. So, he just dealt with idolatry The the whole culture is abandoned to idolatry, and Paul says you can't be idolaters. You can't say that you have communion with God and continue to worship idols like your culture does. He talked about immorality. You can't be immoral like your culture. He talked about suing other Christians and, and treating them with disdain. He says you can't Treat others like that. He talked about factions in the church. You can't live like the culture that is trying to find out who will be your patron, who has the most authority, aligning yourself with that person, and then trying to trying to get your own advantage through that. All the way throughout this book, Paul has been fighting against their tendency to want to, even as believers, to live according to their culture. And now he's coming to another cultural issue. And again, I, by cultural, I mean it, it's rooted in biblical truth. And yet they were, they were responding to their culture in a particular way which indicated a misunderstanding and a misapplication of God's principles concerning male and female roles, male and female relationships. That's the specific issue. Yes, the cultural expression of that was head covering and we'll work our way through it. Uh, Paul really is diving deep into an understanding of of the fact that there are gender roles. And that's built back into the very creation act itself. And that, as we will see, everything has a hierarchy. That is a structure of authority where there's authority and relationship. I mean, in verse 3 we read it. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. I mean, he's diving deep into theology to ground their understanding so that they will properly live out relationships in their culture. Now, of course, we in in the United States don't have any problem with male-female roles, do we? We don't have any problem with an understanding of male and female as a whole, do we? Of course we do. These things have always been a battle, they will always be a battle, and the way we live them out reflects the nature of our understanding of Scripture. Always doctrine leads to a proper, a a doctrine in knowledge leads to a proper doctrine in practice, and I use the word doctrine purposely both places. There's not doctrine, and then why you got to have some practice? There's the doctrine of truth, and then the doctrine of practice, as we will see, both are related together. The Corinthians. Had an orthodox doctrine of Jesus and salvation. They had bad doctrine in their practice, and Paul continually comes after them for that. And so we will reach another place where Paul is going to have to take them to task for something that they are living out in the church that is reflecting the culture and improperly reflecting on God and therefore harming the witness of the church and displeasing and dishonoring the God who died for them. These things matter. What we think, how we understand truth matters, and how we live it out also matters. So let's just dive deeply into this next issue of male and female roles, of the nature of authority between men and women, and really between men and women and God. Now, we're going to go really slowly here because we need, to, we need to ground all of this, as the Apostle Paul does as he starts, very deeply in the very roots of Scripture because these things are under attack, and they are fundamental it's not just about is there male uh, leadership at, in the home? Is it, are there complementarian roles where there is headship and there is submission? Those things, there are those. But those are really a much, they're a reflection of a much bigger issue of God's authority and how he structures our authority so that we respond properly to him. And if Satan can remove our proper understanding of those things, really relating all the way to our understanding of maleness and femaleness, then he begins to undermine, erode, and eliminate the very authority of God in the lives of people. That's the end game. And so we're going to move really slowly. Now, many of you will be familiar with these things. And so if I seem, if I seem like I'm coming really strongly, I am. But not because I necessarily think you don't believe these things, but they must be reviewed. I have a whole new group of people who are attending the church. And I know where many of you come from, solid churches where you've heard these things. But I don't know that that's true for everyone. And I will tell you that our younger generation is being chewed up and spit out when it comes to gender issues. We're going to take some time so that you can walk out of these sermons going, all right, I know what the Bible says, and I know that it says that and not something else. This is vital. Well, and again, the Apostle Paul takes the time to ground these things, so will we? So, we're going to move very slowly. We'll get just through a little bit of the outline this morning, and yet I I think the, the vital nature of this for our day and age is just as vital as for Corinth. So... Now, before we get into the challenging part, well, actually, even the praise here is challenging. Paul first gives his praise to the Corinthians. I mean, he is about to let them have it once again. I mean, he just keeps coming for them. You know, it reminds me of, of, of James, where he just keeps coming after his, you know, the, uh, the churches that he's writing to. It's like, he's like a pirate. You know, he's got a, his pistols in both hands. He's got the, got the cutlass in the mouth, and he's just coming. Right, just keeps on. Well, Paul just keeps coming, but spits the cutlass out for a minute, to give some praise, which is important because he does truly love this church and he wants to make sure he gives them credit for the things they are doing well. It's not a lot, but what they're doing well is fundamental. It's vital. So he says, now, so he's moving to a different topic. Remember, chapter 11, verse 1, related to chapter 10, right? So all of that was one argument, 30 through uh, chapter 11, verse 1. But he says, now, so... Moving on in his argument, I praise you because you remember me in everything and you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And if you've been sitting through the sermons the past couple of months, you're like, what? I mean, he's praising them for remembering him? Yeah, well, maybe to not do what he said. Right? And you hold fast to the traditions uh, as I get into, I mean, they didn't seem to be holding fast to anything. I mean, he keeps coming against them. You can't be immoral. You can... So what does he mean here? Now, there's some commentators who say, well, he's just buttering them up before he hammers them again. So, this is like a little Holy Spirit lying. No, it's not flattery. He's right? not simply saying, well, you know, you're really bad. I'll try to throw a bone to you about something. You're not really doing this. But that's, no, that we do that kind of thing. Right? He has some genuine appreciation for who they are as a church. Remember, he's talking to a real church. Not, it's not a fake church where there's not, the gospel isn't preached, where people don't believe the gospel. Or I would say, as we've worked our way through it, that the vast majority of people in this church were true believers wrestle with the wrestle and struggle that they had. So he's going to commend them for those things, and he's going to do so because he loves them. And he doesn't want them to grow overly discouraged because that can easily happen as he keeps coming after them. So he says, I praise you. I I, I say, well done. Good job. You are doing well in this area. Well, what is it that you remember me in everything? no. I think that probably has a a more theological understanding to it where even in their questions, in their wrestles, as they were struggling, I mean, all that was in light of Paul's teaching. So even as they were wrestling and struggling, saying, look, at at the very least, right, you are remembering the things that I said. You're not even necessarily always doing them. He says, in everything you remember me." It may also be somewhat personal. Right? Well, remember, he says, I'm, I'm your spiritual father. I'm, I'm the one that came and birthed this church, that he has, has an understanding of the fact that they desire a relationship with him. But I think largely this has to do with the fact that he says, look, to your credit, you are constantly thinking about the things that I told you. And I would offer that praise back to this church, that you are constantly thinking about the truths of Scripture. Not the things I say, but the things Paul said, right? The things that the Scripture says. And I would say, I would praise you for that. Well done, And I don't think most of you do anything without thinking about what the Apostle Paul said or what Jesus said or what the Old Testament says. You don't conduct your marriages without thinking about that. You don't pursue your parenting without thinking about that. You don't go to your jobs without thinking about Scripture. Well done. doesn't mean everything is going well, but it is on your mind. And this is how Christians live. This is what they do. Even when they're wrestling and struggling, it's all around the truths of Scripture. Paul says, look, I praise you. You, you remember me in everything. Right? Your whole life is bound up, uh, I would say, in, in the remembrance of the truths of the Scripture that Paul had given. And I would urge on you that that would always be true. There would never be a time when your whole life is not dictated by at least thinking through what Scripture says and deciding what you will do with it. But then he says, beyond simply just thinking about it, maybe even thinking about the relationship with Paul in light of his, of his fatherhood of that church, he also says... And I praise you for that you hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. So Paul's praise for the Corinthians in the present situation, right? Says you, you remember me in everything, and then two, you hold firmly to the traditions. Now again, this is hard because you're like, what traditions? They seem to be abandoning everything that had to do with their practice. I think very specifically here, Paul means you are holding fast to the truths of the gospel as it is narrowly defined. That is the person and work of Jesus. And oftentimes, Paul uses, at least several times, Paul uses tradition to relate directly to that. And he uses it positively Sometimes that word has a negative connotation of the tradition of my fathers, the tradition that my parents had. And Jesus used it negatively with the Pharisees. Look, you hold your own traditions, not to Scripture. But Paul isn't contrasting those two, right? His tradition versus, you know, Scriptural tradition. When he says you hold to tradition, he, what he means is you're holding to Scripture. You're holding to the things that I passed down to you. Second Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught. It's the same word. Whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The truths about who Jesus is, what he did, and how you respond, right? you, you hold fast to those. He says, look, you're holding fast to that. Second, Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. It is fascinating. It does seem that that word tradition is not only the principles, the commands, but also has to do with the way those commands are lived out. Very much like we saw last week where you imitate Paul. You imitate Jesus, not only in what they said, but also in what they did in living out the truth. We're not supposed to separate those in any way. Now, they were wrestling on their keeping of the how you live. But it seems like Paul is commending them for remembering what you are supposed to believe. And I think this is cemented for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Just turn the page uh, to the right there. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, chapter 15, verse 1, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Those are the basics. That's not the only thing Paul taught. But those are the basics. That's the gospel. What Jesus did, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, that we are to repent and put faith and trust in him. So he says to them, he commends them for holding fast to the gospel. He says, you believed it. You received it. You stand in it. Don't abandon it, he says. Be careful. You believe that. <laughs> don't, don't fall away from it. Now, this is, he's already done this. Just, again, to remind you, turn back to 1 Corinthians 1. He started the letter this way. And again, I think it's a good reminder to us that even when we bring correction, when we bring instruction, when when we we want people to be convicted for their sin, we also want to make sure that we affirm the things that they do know and the things they are doing that are correct, particularly if that means they know the gospel and they believed it. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, he said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him. And all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony confirming or concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Remember when we started this? I said, Paul is talking about a real church. The testimony of Christ, who he is, what he's done, Paul's preaching of the gospel, was confirmed in them by the grace of God pouring out through them because the grace of God only comes through Christians. does not come through unbelievers. So he affirms them. He did that at the beginning. He does that here in chapter 11. He says, I mean, they were, they were orthodox to the point that, says verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking for Christ to return. There's some misunderstandings that were blown at big time in a lot of different, very serious ways. And he says, look, you're real believers. You're holding fast the gospel, and he commended them for that. And I would commend you for the same. Well done, that you are clinging to the truths of Scripture, to the person and work of Christ, that there's no other means of salvation, that Christ is preeminent, Christ and Him crucified, which Paul then comes back to say, that is the only message. Don't give that up. Don't go after anything else. And that's what I would urge you. It all starts there. It doesn't stop there. Orthodox belief does not stop with just what you know, even the things you've truly believed. It continues on into the things you do, if it's truly orthodox. But we always begin with faith. We always begin with who Jesus is. And so, again, I would urge you, it it becomes really easy for us to start calling everyone unbelievers, right? As you've come from churches, perhaps, that didn't have a good understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation, that he alone saves. As you come from churches that were maybe lukewarm in their practice, maybe that were shallow in their teaching, and all of a sudden, everybody in your past was an unbeliever. Be really careful of that. And people who come come across, well, there's there's unbelievers. That's such a serious thing that we don't say it as a church unless we work all the way through church discipline on someone. Then we say, then only then are we willing to say, I'm going to treat you as an unbeliever. Be so careful. I mean, if someone can't profess Christ, I understand. That's not a believer. We have to be so careful. And even with a church like Corinth, which I would say wrestled in its practice to a greater degree than... Grace Community Church, even a church such as that, is commended for clinging tightly to christ that 's no small feat in this world. right The vast majority of people don 't cling to Christ at all, so we ought to rejoice when they do, and we ought to be thankful when anyone does and when any church does. Well, Paul thanks them, he praises them you 're doing well in remembering me, thinking through the things that I have said, and then holding fast to the traditions, the most basic things. John MacArthur says this, "...the basic problem in the Corinthian church did not concern doctrine, but morals. Not theology, but lifestyle. They were orthodox, but not pure. They remembered and believed the cardinal truths about God's nature and work, but they did not live godly lives. So Paul praises them for their strengths." before he again begins to correct their weaknesses and in this case their misunderstanding of male female roles and relationships he's going to come for them again cutlass back in the mouth coming after him coming up the you know coming up the coming up the rigging you know getting ready getting ready to go after him but he wants to make sure that they know that he appreciates that they're holding fast to Christ now that was the easy part We now move to an introduction of Paul's teaching on hierarchy, authority, and submission. Yes, I said all three of those words, and those are your outline point, all right? The one, so Paul's introduction of hierarchy, authority, and submission. Now on, you can just do H and A and S, has, because I'll be saying that quite often. Hierarchy, just simply the fact that relationships have structure, And they have an authority, an inherent authority structure. That's what we mean by a hierarchy, and it's not an evil word. It is the way that God has built the universe. And that hierarchy involves authority and response, right? Submission to authority and the proper exercise of authority. These are not things that Christians are afraid of. They're not things that Christians deny in any relationship. There's no such thing as a relationship that does not have an inherent structure to it. And the Bible gives us an understanding of how they are to work. And who better to look to for relationships? Why would you look to the world to tell you how men ought to relate to women? They're doing a good job, aren't they? I mean, think about that for one second. Think about the domination of women down throughout the ages where men have harmed them and where women have fought back against them, undermining and manipulating, and where there's been this war between men and women. Oh, the the society's getting it great. So, you know, along with John G. Stackhouse, we got to start doing what our society does. I mean, utter disaster. There's only one person who knows how to conduct relationships, and that's the God who built them. It's the safest place in the world to be living out a relationship with the proper authority structures. Even though men are sinful, even though Christian men and women sin mightily in relationship, it is the best place to be, safely in the arms of our God through Scripture. And he's going to tell us. So we make no apologies for the strength in which Paul lays out, particularly here, male-female relationships. And yet we have to properly understand them because they have been much perverted, even by Christians down throughout the ages. Till Paul says, he begins, this; he's going to launch into this long discussion on male-female relationships, by saying, I mean classically, I want you to understand. I mean, this is the pastoral mandate. As the pastors of the church, we want one thing for you. We want you to understand. We're not saying, well, just go do this. Run out in a you know fit of emotion and you know go be like this. Try to live your marriages based on your gut feelings. No, you need to understand. You need to know. It's a very strong word. You need to have the ability to properly grasp the principles involved to the point of being able to do them. So I just have information about because I want you to understand. This is what we long for you to do. Again, you can't fight against a rampantly evil society unless you understand. We're not here to just say, "Well, go out and do." Or pay no attention to, you know, to teaching, just pay attention to emotion. We'd be fools to do that. We want you to understand, and that's why we come week after week. We spend 50 to 55 minutes explaining the Scripture. You go take your kids on Wednesday night, take them to Truth Trek, and they've got got catechism questions over and over, right? 50, 60, 70 of those things that they keep going so that we understand the truth of the Scriptures, and then we teach how to live that. Our teenagers are getting 45 to 50 minutes on Wednesday night of teaching them to understand, and then we put them in places where we live that out so they understand what it looks like, not just understand how it was said. Everything we do teaches, just like you do in your home, right? Everything is teaching. You want your kids to what? Understand, not just do. You want them to know. You bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, that's what the church does. That's what we're here for. We are not here to party. We are not here to play. We are not here to stroke people's egos. Paul says, look, I want you to understand, which means I have to tell you where you're wrong, teach you how to do it rightly, and then hold you accountable to those things. That's what a church does. That's why you're here. You wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't want that. Well, that's what we do. And so now having said that, we're going to dive deeply into a word study. You're like, whoa, really, on Sunday morning? Yes, I don't do this often, actually, because generally, the word study is pretty obvious. What the English word says, it means. You're like, okay, so the Greek is this, and the English word is this, and it means what the English word means. But in this case, there's a huge debate. The whole nature of this passage swings on one word, and it is tremendously debated. So we're going to get a little instruction in hermeneutics this morning, and we are going to go all the way through on one particular word study because we have to get this right. The word is in verse 3, and it's actually used 11 times in this passage. And the word is head. Verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, you're You're a well-taught congregation. Probably immediately you're filling in there. Okay, you're thinking head. I know in Ephesians it says that the wife should submit to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So it's probably got something to do with authority and submission and submitting to Christ. You're well-taught people. You're probably immediately thinking that. Guess what? A lot of really smart commentators disagree with you. In fact, most of the evangelical conservative commentators that I read for this passage that I've been using all along lost their minds on this passage. Because I would say they're culturally conformed. They don't want to hold strongly to the idea that there is an authority and a a submission in male-female relationships, trying to teach something like the woman is the glory of the man, a woman should have a, a, a symbol of authority on her head. They're like, we want no part of that. And so we'll just say that authority is not even found in this passage. That's what they say. Good real commentators who I've been quoting to you all along suddenly say, no authority here no hierarchy structure no hierarchical structure just all about source maybe we'll talk about that maybe all about just being preeminent but with no thought of leadership i mean we just read the passage uh, this you're going to have a hard time doing that but i want to walk it through because the, this uh, most modern commentators are now using a word study to say that this word does not mean authority it does not headship that has nothing to do with authority or submission so we're going to do the word study ourselves right here this morning now as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, not English. All right? So you have to look at the Greek manuscripts in order to be able to understand the Greek words which are behind the English ones. In this case, in verse 3, and all throughout, the word head in English translates a Greek word, kephale. Right? So the Greek word is then tra- used, the translators look at that word and say, oh, we're going to translate that as head. Now the problem is. If we're just thinking head as in the anatomical object on the top of your body, head, that's pretty basic. But if you look in verse 3, it clearly does not mean your anatomical head with your face and your nose and your ears. Okay? Christ is the head of every man. It's just, that's not going to work. Right? The man is the head of So it's going to have to be what? A metaphorical usage. That is, it has, it has a connotation of a certain aspect of living. We call it headship. All right, so it's, it has a metaphorical usage. So, understanding that the word kafale is used 75 times in the New Testament, the Greek word, the New American Standard translates that Greek word kafale as the English word head 69 times. Okay? So you can start doing your math if you need to. 28 times in the Gospels that all refer to the physical head of a person. Three times in the book of Acts, again, physical head. One time in the book of Romans... Physical. uh, It refers to the physical head of an individual. Now, eight times here in 1 Corinthians, it also refers to physical head. The man's head, the woman's head just keeps talking about that back and forth. We read that. Okay, so the physical head. Three times here in 1 Corinthians, it assuredly means the metaphorical concept of headship. And those are all in verse 3. However, there are two times in this passage where the reference could be physical or metaphorical. Right, so look at verse four. Every man who has something on his head—that would be physical head—while prophesying, uh, praying, or prophesying disgraces his head. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to work through that. Is that his physical head that he's disgracing, or is he disgracing his head, the one Christ who's the head over him? We have to work our way through that. It's used in one way with the woman as, woman as well. She's got something. She she's supposed to have something on her head, and if she doesn't, she disgraces her head. So those two instances, all right. Might be physical head, might be metaphorically referring to the idea of headship. Now, moving past, four times in Ephesians, Paul uses it metaphorically, not to refer to a physical aspect. Three times in Colossians, all three of those are metaphorical. And then back to John writing in Revelation, he uses it 19 times. They all refer to the physical head of a person or a creature, mostly creatures, beasts, and the head, their heads, like seven heads and seven crowns. So... If you were adding, 57 of the 69 occurrences translated as head are physical, the physical head. Ten times where it's clearly a metaphorical concept of headship, and then two times whether it's either metaphorical or physical. We're not sure. Now, then, thus, the ten undisputed times in the New Testament where the Greek word kephale is translated head and where it's used metaphorically are all by Paul, ten of them. Right, where he uses the concept of headship. Of the ten times Paul uses it metaphorically, five are undisputedly in relationship to authority. We'll read them. Two, retain the concept of authority, actually the source of authority, the way, the place from which authority comes. Three others are disputed references, and the references are all here. These are all disputed. Does that mean authority or doesn't it? Right? Now, you might be wondering, if you're doing your math, well, we did 69 times. It's translated head, Well, how is kafale translated the other six times? Well, four of them, interestingly enough, so the Greek word kafale, when it's not translated with the English word head by the New American Standard, four other times it translates the word chief, as in chief cornerstone, preeminent one, the one that is above all the others, which you might already get the idea that that seems to give you some idea of leadership or rulership or preeminence or having the first place. One time, this is fascinating, it's used in the book of Acts by Luke. He says Paul was getting his kafale cut, his head cut. No, haircut. It says it's translated haircut, and he uses it that way. All right? So hopefully you don't get your head cut when you go to get your haircut. but that's how he used it. And then one other instance, it's used for the, to translate the word very, but it's the very cornerstone, exactly the same as really chief cornerstone. It's weird that the New American Standard translates it very there when it used chief everywhere else. So... In the Greek New Testament, the majority of times, the ten times when we know it's metaphorical, it seems to relate directly to some sort of authority structure where, there's, where there is authority given, where there is uh, submission following after that. Now, that's one aspect of word study. How is it used in the New Testament? You might be thinking, of course, there's another aspect, and that is how is the Greek word kephale, and how do the translators of the Old Testament Hebrew, when they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, about a couple hundred years before the New Testament, how do they use the word kefali? Because they're in the biblical milu. They're, they're looking at things biblically. So how do they use when they, when they have the word head used in the Old Testament? When they take a Hebrew word that they believe to mean head, do they use kefali for that? What does it mean when they do it? Well, they do. About 281 times this word is used, and about 281 times it's used metaphorically. And when it is in the Old Testament, that is when the Hebrew is translated into Greek, of those metaphorical usages, almost all of them refer to chief, leader, or leadership. There's many times when it's just the physical head again, but oftentimes, and the most often, when it's used metaphorically, it has to do with leadership, ruling, and submission. 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-four is representative of of the ways that that word kefale is translated into, back into the Old Testament. It's a translation of the Hebrew. It says, you have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. I don't think you have to do too much exegesis to figure out. That has to do with authority and submission, serving, and ruling. Right? So that would be how the usage is when you're looking just at the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Well... Again, you're well-taught people, so you're thinking there's probably, well, there's another way we have to track down a word. And what is that? How is it used in the external Greek literature of the day? So if you've got people sitting around in Corinth, you know, reading their fictional novels, it weren't really such a thing, but, uh, you know, reading, reading their philosophy, was kephale used for anything other than headship and authority? Well, here's where, your, where my Bible commentators will say, oh, yes, There is another meaning for this word, and it's actually the meaning. Although, really, in biblical terms, there's almost no words that use it for anything other than authority, yet they import, and they would say from outside sources, generally, and and from context. We'll see that in just a minute. They would say, no, actually, head means source. That is, the place from which something originates, like the headwaters of the Nile, has nothing to do with authority or leadership or submission, just simply where something came from, right? So if something is the head of something else, then that thing came from its head. And they would apply that to verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the origin of every man, that the man is the origin of the woman, and that God is the origin of Christ. Well, already you're like, okay, we're going to maybe wrestle to see that you could import that meaning in there. But let's, they would say, again, in general, all the other usages in the New Testament and old are about authority. Right? So how can they hold to source? They just, again, the kind of magically picked that. It can't be authority, so we'll go with source. Well, it can't be from the Greek literature of the time. Wayne Grudem did a study on this. He, he looked at the sources of Greek literature during that time. said that there's about 200, or 2,336 usages that he could find in literature from the period of Paul and Corinth. 2,000 of them denote the physical head, 302 of them are, have a metaphorical use, with 49 of those 302 applying directly to things like superior authority, rank, or ruling. But not a single instance was discovered where kafale meant source or origin. They weren't reading the Greek manuscripts. Now, again, what they would say is where, it, where it's used for a, the physical head in the context, it carried carried some idea, perhaps, of source. So there's there's some there's some dispute, a lot of dispute, about how we translated those things or how we how we thought about the context. But nonetheless, there is not a single time where it's actually used as source or origin of. You only have to we'd have to draw that from the context. Right now, and they would say, okay. Let's understand that when you are translating a Greek word, it might mean something everywhere else in the New Testament and mean something different in the particular context in which it is. And that's true. That is a principle of hermeneutics. Justification in the book of James, is very, it's the same word, but it's very different than the way Paul uses it. All right? So we've got to be careful here. So let's look at our context to see this very briefly. We'll be spending the rest of our months doing this. Uh, but look down at verse 8. This Here's what they would, would, would say immediately. No... It says the man, in verse 3, it says the man is the head of every woman. They say, well, no, that means origin, that is the woman originates from the man, because that's what it says in verse 8. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So, there it is. Now, the only only question is, is verse 8, speaking of the same concept, as headship found in verse 3? The answer is, if you study through it, absolutely not. In fact, The origin argument, where the woman comes from, is actually used to enhance the headship argument. She comes from him. That is why he is her head. The translators forgot, my commentators forgot to follow that all the way through. Because look, both before and after, right? In verse seven, it says, man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Some kind of hierarchical relationship going on there. The woman actually is man's glory, whereas Christ is the man's glory. The man glorifies Christ, the woman glorifies man. Now, don't freak out. We're going to work our way through that, but the Bible says that. So we're going to have to work our way through it, all right? It's a sweet thing, actually, but nonetheless. Uh, But then right after that, it says, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, so this whole idea of origin, does it eliminate headship? Is it replace headship? Is Is it the same? Does it eliminate authority? Look at verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority because she originates from the man. She ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Oops. We can't be eliminating authority. Can't be eliminating the idea of submission and leadership. So, kephale or head cannot be translated with origin on the basis of the context. In fact, the use of origin in the context only heightens the idea of what it means to be head, to have rule over and to have response in submission. All right, we'll work our way through the rest of that. All right, but nonetheless, we're trying to, trying to give you an overview here so I, so I can refer to this, and I won't have to do this to you again. I mean, you're here this morning, you're like, wow, I mean, I, I showed up for this. Uh, well, hopefully it's helpful. Right, But you've got to know it because vast majority of my commentators, and if you're talking to people out in the world, they've been listening to preachers and teachers who are saying, no, there's no authority. You're going, why? It seems like that to me. It's because they're, they're mistranslating the word. They're giving it a wrong meaning. Very important. Now, secondly, here's where most of my more conservative commentators went with another view of headship that still doesn't have to do with authority. This is both fascinating and puzzling. So, Guys like Anthony Thistleton, others whom I've quoted to you. Uh, actually, Gordon Fee, who I quote to you a lot. I really like his commentary. He loses his mind in this passage, and he starts off by saying it can only mean source. It couldn't possibly mean anything else. Anybody that read it would have said source. And I'm like, seriously? I mean, with all the other New Testament context and the authority here, really? Well, he, he, he plays his hand, or, or he, he tips his hand When he says at the beginning of the commentary, hey, just know that when I get get to things about men and women, I don't believe there's hierarchical relationships because I'm a man of my times. I I just can't can't go with that. He says that at the beginning of his commentary. When he gets to chapter 14 where it says a woman should uh, not speak in church, he goes, that's just a gloss. Somebody added that. I mean, he's a textual critic. He's dead now. But he was one of the foremost textual critics, which means he knows what's in manuscripts We'll talk about that more when we get there. He's saying, no, that just got invented, even though there's not a manuscript on the planet that doesn't have that phrase in there, that a woman should not speak in church. And again, yes, that's in the Bible, and we're going to have to talk about how that works. All right, But it's in there. Somebody didn't just add it. Because he's driven by a cultural bias, he changes, I would say, he changes the meaning of the word. He's going to shade his way in that way. All right, well, now back to the more conservative second meaning of head. They would say it means the potential of or it means it is that which is in the highest place that which is preeminent that which is foremost or uppermost but without any reference to hierarchy ruling or submission so it's foremost it's preeminent it's first it's best and highest but there's no thought of authority or submission i mean just think about that for a minute so it's the highest it's above everything else so the word does mean that but there's no reference to any kind of authority relationship that you would submit to that preem, nothing like that. Well, I mean, that's, that's the weakest way. If you have preeminence, you have what? You have a hierarchy of something that is above something else. And when it comes to relationship, then there's a response, which is, how do you respond to the preeminent one? That's all built into our passage. So I agree that it has to do with preeminence, with being first, with being foremost, and the one who's first in a particular relationship is the one who exercises the authority and the one underneath that responds in submission. But they just say, Ooh, we're going to suck that meaning out of it. And I just would have to say it's because they're uncomfortable with it. They don't like that it means that, which is unfortunate. The third and most probable meaning of head is, the, is that of authority, the one who exercises authority and to whom another person under that authority submits. Now, let me read you the verses. You can turn there as I read them to get your context. Ephesians chapter 1, so again, we're looking at the places where Paul uses the word kephale. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 20. It says, "...which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Some authority discussion there? I mean, that's all that it's about. Okay? Above all other rulers, above everything else, he is the head, the preeminent ruler. And guess what? Everyone else submits to him. That's the hierarchical relationship which we have with Christ. If you, and all men do. Ephesians 4, so you can turn there. So Paul uses it here. Ephesians 4, 15. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Really, the, the reference there is to the idea of a, a, a physical head of a body, but it's spiritually. But look what happens here. So we grow up into him who is the head. So he's not the source, as it were even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building above itself in love. So the idea of a physical head that Christ represents, well, what does the head do? Does the body have its origin from the head, the source, like like from the lake where the Nile River comes? I mean, that's the weirdest thought ever, that that's what the metaphor means. The body generates the head. No, the head is the source of what? all the instructions. The head is the source of authority. And if the hands and the feet and the rest of the body don't do what the head says, guess what? They are disobeying. They are not responding properly to their head. So it's not source, as in source of the body. It is source of instructions to the body. So it does carry that idea, the source of leadership, source of authority to which we submit. Ephesians 5.23, which you are very familiar with, Ephesians 5, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife. It's not the origin of the wife. It's not the source of the wife. She doesn't come from him. She submits to him. And he is to lead her. He is to be her head. Why? Husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, we're going to get into this. Headship is more than just exercising authority, it is exercising authority biblically, lovingly, wisely, sacrificially. We'll get into all that, but it's not less than that ever, even though biblical authority is always exercised in the commands of, under the commands of God and in the power of the Spirit of God. That's why it's such a great place to be. Under biblical authority is the best place you could ever be. Responding and submitting to it is the best thing ever. Colossians 118, you can go there. And again, some powerful verses. Remember, these are all the verses where head is used metaphorically in the New Testament. 18, he is also, this is Jesus, he is before all things, this is verse 17, in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, similar idea as Ephesians. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Well, what does his headship mean? So that he will come to have first place in everything. Authority there? I think so. Right? He has first place, preeminence. And that doesn't mean he is, oh, you're so awesome, you're first place. We do what you say. He's the head, he rules the church. Colossians 2.10. just flip over. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over what? All rule and authority. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't possibly mean authority in 1 Corinthians 11, that's all it means everywhere else. I mean, the head over all rule and authority. Couldn't be more clear. 2.19, similar aspect where the head is used in reference to the physical head, metaphorically for the head of the body of Christ. It says, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. That the same idea. The head directs the body and enables it to be strong and healthy in that sense because it gives the right instructions. So what's the definition of headship? Here it is. The position or station from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under authority and to the glory of God from whom the authority originates. Headship, head, the position or station from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under authority and to the glory of God from whom the authority originates. Now, I just want to do one more thing on your outline this morning to take you into the structure of The hierarchical, I think I've said that word 10 times this morning, on purpose, the hierarchical structure, authority, and submission of the entire universe. We're just going to get that started. No, we're not going to do that in three minutes. All right, we're just going to get it started because you need to see that it's there. God has built it in everywhere. You can't escape it. So the nature, this is number two on your outline, sorry to do this to you again, the nature of hierarchy, authority, and submission. You knew it was coming. H-A-S, you abbreviate it now because you wrote, wrote it down. Now, the fact that men have indeed, and women I would say, but men and women have misused and misunderstood the role of headship and submission and have at times, and men have at times harmed women grievously, which they have, and the fact that society hates and completely denies the concept of male headship and female submission in no way changes the meaning of Scripture. God has designed the universe in such a way that there are multiple levels of authority and submission, and he makes no excuse for this. Why? Because it is very best. I've said this. There is no better place for a woman, no safer place on this planet for a woman than in a home where a man who loves Jesus is laying down his life in biblical headship for her underneath a church in which male elders are properly laying down their lives for the congregation. There's no safer place in the universe for a woman. Nowhere. And no better place for a man as the woman responds to him. No better place for him to be able to accomplish the purposes of the Lord and to love his life well for them to accomplish what the Lord would have. No better place for manhood to be properly exercised than in a home where a woman is properly responding with biblical uh, submission and in a church where the women are responding to the male leadership in ways that complement the nature of how they're built. This is sweet. It is beautiful. It is right. It beats anything and everything the world has to offer you do not lose your minds. Do not somehow think, well, the world's got a better idea. Good old John G. Stackhouse. Well, we better do what culture does. That would be really good for us. I'm not, you want to destroy your relationships? You want to see women harmed? I'm telling you, even the statistics, i mean, as it, though it needed to—the statistics, statistics bear themselves out that women in complementary, and that is where there is authority and submission. And complementarian homes are the safest place ever. Less abuse, less harm in every way. Don't believe the big bad wolf of complementarian men running around and harming women. I'll tell you, men have been harming women throughout the ages without complementarianism. And they will continue to do so. And they don't harm because of it. They harm when they don't live it. They harm when they're ungodly, unfaithful men, not looking like Jesus, refusing to lay their lives down, or just abandoning their leadership altogether because this is not what we teach, because it's not what the Bible says. But we don't teach this because we're, you know, we're mad at women and we just, man, men want to dominate the world. We're doing this because this is how God has given to protect women to work and give man his proper purpose and to enable all of us to accomplish the work and will of God. So I just want to give you one aspect of hierarchy, authority, and submission. In society... Right, So society has these multiple levels. It is best for society. Do you think it's better, just let me put this to you, do you think it's better for society to have no hierarchical relationships? No, no submission leadership relationships? How does that go? Let's try a little anarchy. That would be great. Let's just all do what's right in our own eyes. Why don't you read the book of Judges? There has to be hierarchical authority submission relationships or everything goes wrong. Everything. And God's built it in. Government and citizens. So society is your A underneath there. And then there's government and citizens, Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection. That's a hierarchy relationship, right? That's leadership, that's authority. To be in subjection to the governing authorities for, here it is, there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. We're not going to jump into all the details of how government authority works. It's just simply there. There is a hierarchy in government. Citizens submit to the government period. Now again, there's nuances to how we work it out. But that is the that is the principle because God establishes all authority. So, you're claiming your own authority, so I'm going to use my authority to tear you down and then we'll have no authority. It will never work. Someone always rules. Boss, employee, master, slave. Now, I put those together because most often in scripture it speaks of master-slave relationships in their best outworking. It would look much like, it's not the same as, but would would look much like a good boss employee relationship if everyone was living biblically. Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Be obedient in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever... Good thing each one does. This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that you're their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with them. Workplace does not work. Nothing gets done if there's not a hierarchy there, if there's not a leadership and submission. The boss says, do this, and everybody says, not doing it. Nothing gets done. The economy grinds to a halt as we are seeing happening with everyone in charge and no one willing to follow, and everything falls apart. Well, then teacher-student, oh, this is a big one. Luke 6.4, Luke 6.40. A pupil is not above his teacher. Young people, hear me carefully. You don't grab the internet and walk into your classroom and go, you got nothing to tell me. I know better than you because everybody told me, my Facebook told me that you know nothing and I know as much as you know and you can't tell me what to do. You want to boil your society up? Just do that. People know more than you. They're better than you. They can teach you and you ought to respond to them and if you don't, this whole society will pay the price. We're not even talking spiritual yet, <laughs> directly. It's all spiritual because Christ is the authority. You want to destroy society? No one can learn. And that's exactly what's happening. No one can learn. A society that's absolutely intellectually insane. So what's going on. Pupil is not better than a teacher. goes on to say, after he has been fully trained, he will be like his teacher. You want to have some authority? You want to say, all right, I've now reached the place where I can teach? You'd better learn. That hierarchy has been established by your Savior, by God himself, because it's the only way that things will progress forward. So you already begin to see it. In the warp and woof of society is built hierarchical structures of authority and submission because it reflects the very character of the way God desires to get his work done. And it's the only way to get things done. Now, biggest picture here, though. Why why are we going after this? It's not societal structures that are so much what's involved here, except very specifically male-female. But why is that such a big deal? Because when you boil down the refusal to see any kind of authority-submission relationship in male-female relationships, you begin to destroy the barriers between maleness and femaleness. We will see this. It is step one in androgenizing a culture where there is no authority, there is no submission, because male and female don't matter. I'm not saying that all egalitarians are somehow moving their way towards a refusal to see any difference between male and female. But that is where it started. That is, there's no authority, they're all the same, and therefore there's no true maleness or femaleness. Authority structures in relationship are built into maleness and femaleness. We will see this. These things matter. You need to know your Bibles so that you do not get sucked away into a culture because Satan's end game is this. No maleness and femaleness, where a person stands before, it stands in culture and says, I, I will determine my own gender. No authority. No one will tell me what to do. I am God. That is Satan's end game. And it goes this fuck, guys, stop, stop hopping on the bandwagons and getting so upset about transgenderism and homosexuality. It's a bad deal, bad for society. That's not Satan's end game. The end is this I rule the individual rules. However he'll get however he can get that, it's just it looks most it's most deeply embedded when you can look into the mirror and look at your DNA and say, "I refuse to say that's true. No authority over me. God cannot create me male. I'm going to be female." But the issue is you rule. And if God doesn't rule, there's only one person who does. And it's you. So this matters to the church. And it matters for us to properly represent God, understanding authority relationships, and most particularly when it comes to male and female. Because this is how we, we were created in the image of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you that you have left us with everything we need to know how to respond to one another, and how to love each other, to know how to care for each other, to know how to live joyfully, successfully, and in a a God-glorifying way, in a way that glorifies you in our homes, in our workplaces, and under our government. Lord, you have given us the truth, and I pray that as a church we would embrace that because we want to look like Jesus, because we want to grasp the truths of the gospel that you are King and Lord, you are Savior, Ruler, and Master, and we bend the knee to you in repentance and faith. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.